Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Geraldo Cadava, and this is Writing Latinos, a podcast from Public Books. Latino scholars, memoirists, novelists, journalists, and others have used the written word as their medium for making a statement about Latinidad. We'll talk to some of them about how their writing illuminates the Latino experience. Some of our episodes will be nerdy and academic, while others will be playful and lighthearted. All will offer thoughtful reflections on Latino identity and how writing conveys some of its meanings. If you like what you hear, like and subscribe to Writing Latinos wherever you get your podcasts. Now for the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Writing Latinos. I'm really excited to talk today with Hector Tobar. Tobar is the award-winning author of six books, including Our Migrant Souls, A Meditation on Race and the Meanings and Myths of Latino. That's the book we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. He's also written for the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the New Yorker, and other publications, and is a professor of literary journalism and Chicano Latino studies at the University of California, Irvine. Finally, he's the winner of prestigious awards, including a Pulitzer Prize and just last month, a Guggenheim Fellowship. Many congratulations and thank you for joining me, Hector. Thank you so much for having me. First, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the dedication of your book. You dedicate mm-hmm. it to Latina historian named Vicky Ruiz. And I know her well, of course, but I didn't realize that. I mean, I could have guessed since you're at Irvine and she was at Irvine that you guys would have had a connection. But could you tell me a little bit about what um, Vicky Ruiz has meant to you as a colleague, a mentor, any number of things? Well, yeah, Vicky is the um, groundbreaking historian of Latina women's history and especially of Latina working women's history. And she's responsible for bringing me here to UC Irvine um, and for bringing me here as a tenured professor and for creating the conditions that um, allowed me to write this book. Uh, Among other things, she's also a mentor to many, many historians, including my partner and wife, Virginia Espino, who got her PhD studying with Vicky and and wrote um, her dissertation about the sterilization of women at Los Angeles County General Hospital, a dissertation that later became the movie No Mas Bebes, which Mm. was released a few years ago to to great success. So Vicky has always been a supporter of mine, a believer in me. And I, I wanted to dedicate it to her and to her story, her, the historians that she's mentored, because they've done so so much to transform my understanding of the contributions of Latinas to United States history. She is one of these figures that has loomed large over um, all of our careers in a lot of ways, not only through the books mm-hmm. that she's written, but just her generosity as a mentor and commentator Absolutely. on conference panels and any number of things. So um, 
Thank you. Thank you for explaining all that. Another thing you explain in your book is that James Baldwin is the literary father of our migrant souls. And I wanted to, I think that our listeners would kind of enjoy knowing what you meant by that. Well, yeah, you know, I've been teaching classes here at UCI for six, seven years now, and I teach a course called um, Writing Race, in which we talk about contemporary nonfiction about um, about race issues. And there's just so many great, you know, African-American, especially essayists, such as W.B. Du Bois and James Baldwin. Um, but I really felt kind of an absence of, of work by Latino writers that addresses the topic of what it means to be Latino within the race scheme of the United States. And so I set out to write that book and it very, you know, very much with James Baldwin and his incredible voice as a novelist and essayist in, in my head, you know, that, that voice of someone who has been hurt um, and, and is angered uh, by the racism he has seen. You know, James Baldwin was shaped by the civil rights struggles that he witnessed in the 1950s and 60s, very close to Medgar Evers and Malcolm X and, and knew Martin Luther King and, and saw all of them killed. Um, and for me, you know, growing up in this state of California and teaching at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, to see the growth of the anti-immigrant movement and all the hatred directed at people like my family. And and at people like my students, and have to have my students express this the hurt and the sense of of being insulted that they feel at American media culture, especially in the way it portrays Latino people. So I just set out to write something channeling the voice of James Baldwin in my head, knowing that I had to write something very specific to to my experience and to the experience of Latino people. James Baldwin wrote the fire next time, directed it to his nephew. Um, I, I decided that I would direct my book in, in in this direct address that the book is written in to my students and especially my, my Latino Chicano students. And, you know, I, I had picked up on the connection of a letter to his nephew and you writing a letter to your students, but I, I, I had also picked up on your different emotional registers of writing. There's there. I feel like there's anger in your book. There's hurt in your book, but there's also hope in your book in the sense that it is kind of future oriented. And maybe that's also the the tie in to your students. In some ways, I feel like the book begins and ends addressing Latino youth. So um, could you talk about that a little bit? I mean, what what is it about? Why did writing to your students and offering them something that was also future oriented? Why did that make sense for you? Well, you know, my students are intellectuals. I mean, they don't think of themselves that way. Um, they're 18, 19, 20, you know, 21, 22 years old, but they've come here to a university to become thinkers and to become professionals. And so you see them beginning their journey of intellectual inquiry and exploration. Um, and so, um, you know, I just, it, to me, I just see the future in their writing. You know, they, they, they write stories for me in assignments in my nonfiction classes, in my Latino studies classes, in which I basically ask them, tell me a story about the Latino experience. And those stories are invariably about survival and, and, and about, um, about being strong, right? About resilience, 
They're about resilience. They might describe a dysfunctional family. They might describe alcoholism. They might describe um, moments of precarity and humiliation, but they always end with the writer reaching the present. And in the present, they're undergraduates at the University of California, one of the great universities of the world. And um, and so you can't help but read those narratives again and again. And I've literally read hundreds without being optimistic about the future. I mean, first of all, because people have such love for their community. You know, they have such love for their histories. They're curious about those histories. They they want to unlock the mysteries in their pasts. And um, and so to see that they're that they that they've been surrounded by that much love, all of that gives me a lot of hope for the future. And I'm just naturally a, an optimistic person because my parents were each divorced three times and kept on getting remarried, <laughs> and you always had to have hope for a better future. Oh man, where would we be without it? You have to, right. yeah, no, totally. And you know, I'm going to ask questions a little bit out of order because you were mentioning the kinds of things mm-hmm. that you're students write about. And I remember one of the things you say that all of your students have stories about is about their parents. And sometimes it's their parents crossing stories. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's the story of their their parents' love affair, those kinds of things. And, and this is something that you write about in the book as well, your own story with your parents and their migration story and the kind of... Um, the, the kind of ways in which those stories of their parents, migration and love affairs have also shaped them. The specificity of the of the Latino experience is that it is such a dramatic epic in the minds of the students. You know, I think that African-American students grow up with young people, grow up with a sense of the epic nature, you know, of of their histories. One that, but one that stretches back centuries. For a lot of Latino students, the drama is what happened the week before, you know, and and they're living with this person who's undergone an odyssey, you know, who's undergone their own sort of like Iliad to get to the United States or to survive the civil war in El Salvador. And so I remember once a student standing up in my class, we were talking about uh, histories of migration and whatnot. And he, and he stood up and it was a class of about 100 students. And he said, you know, for... For us, a lot of us, you know, we feel small before the stories of our parents. It's like we could never live, do anything that lives up, you know, to the epic nature and the drama of what they did, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And it, to tell you the truth, it's kind of frustrating. <laughs> it's kind mm-hmm. of frustrating mm-hmm. to live that way. And that that really struck me. So I think that, that um, having lived through, um, you know, this recent migration, the arrival in a new community in the United States and, you know, it's sometimes even creating a barrio. You know, a lot of students are from new barrios, you know, mm-hmm. in corners of South Central where there weren't that many Latino people until their parents arrived or their grandparents arrived um, or some other place in the United States. So I think that that really is something that's very distinctive. And for me, just hearing all the specificity of it, you know, the constant you know, human invention and the surprises and the crazy turns that all the stories take. You know, a lot of them are really, my favorites, some of my favorites are written about one place, like one apartment where like three generations of people came through this one apartment and all these uncles and cousins and like 20 or 30 different people lived in this one apartment from one extended family at different times in history. So yeah, it's just, it's uh, that, that to me is absolutely irresistible as a writer. And I think I'm interested in this is that I see all the time how 
the the expectations of families and communities kind of shape how individual students see their experiences here on campus because they do want to kind of make good on all of the promises they've made to their families. And I think that that's exciting for them, but it comes with some degree of responsibility. And it can be psychologically heavy to deal with. Yes. You know, yes. to be the person who's going to redeem your family story. Yes. You know, I, I became a writer and it was only in my fourth book that I realized I learned from my father that his mother had been illiterate. And so, wow. oh, well, maybe that's why I became a writer was that this man pushed me to be successful because he had this deep humiliation in his past that involved his his illiterate mother, you know? Um, so yeah, it can also be a, a, a burden. Did you learn mm -hmm. that fact about illiteracy after you had already become a writer? Oh, absolutely. I think yeah. I was on my fourth novel. I was <laughs> writing columns, um, fourth book. Um, yeah. And I, I was writing um, columns for the Los Angeles Times. And I wrote a column about adult illiteracy in Lo Los Angeles and this program that was educating um, older Latina and Latino men and women mm -hmm. to read and write for the first time. And my father read this column and he came to my house and and showed me a copy of my grandmother's passport that had an X where the signature should be and a bureaucrat had written, you know, ignora firmar. So all of that had happened mm. long after I had had become a writer. That's amazing. And, it, you know, to me, it underscores one of the things that I think you write about a lot in the book. It might not be one of the themes that you identify in the beginning explicitly, but it's kind of a through line is... Latinidad and Latino history is a kind of intergenerational conversation and what connects one generation to another, even if we don't know some of these histories until right. well after we're living them. And so that's why I think it's interesting, the fact that you didn't even learn this about your own family until you were four novels in. And I think you remember, you said something even about like the ways in which these old histories still live in our DNA, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I think that, um, you know, I have, for example, this fascination um, with uh, the Holocaust and with massacres. So I know all about the Armenian genocide and the Rwandan genocide and the Cambodian, you know, killing fields. And it's like, why, why do I have this fascination? And I, and I thought about it. And, you know, my father, just before I was born, a few years before I was born, was living through all of these violent episodes in Guatemala. And Latino history, especially the history of indigenous peoples, is filled with all of these acts of, of violence. And we've suffered through these cultural erasures in the written history. But perhaps... Our DNA has found ways to pass this longing, this sense that we're broken in some way and, and we want to sort of understand. And so I think that and, and that's, you know, we had Latino identity. One of the things that helps define it is the sense of having a history, but it's also not knowing the history and having this mystery that's been hanging over you your whole life. You know, so many I can't tell you how many times I've read a student who has told me about they I know my father is holding something back. He's not telling me about something or he won't talk mm -hmm. about this, you know, and, and knowing that there's some trauma there and then reaching an age where they can begin to ask questions and begin to sort of uncover what those things are or begin to guess what they might be by talking to the, you know, brothers and sisters of their father and whatnot. So, yeah, that's, I think those are, those are really common threads in, in the Latino experience. Yeah, that, that is fascinating. I, I think that's, 
100% true. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is the book's kind of central naming of the migrant experience is a mm. really important part of the Latino experience overall. It's even in the title, Our Migrant Souls. And in some ways, I felt like a lot of the book wasn't an address to migrants, an address to Americans about what they should think about migrants and you working through your own thoughts about migration. So, um, you know, I wanted to ask you how and why you think the migrant experience is one that's really central to Latino identity, Latino history. Well, I think that when you think about Latino as a de facto race term. Now, we all know it's supposed to be an ethnicity, mm -hmm. right? Right. But in practice, people equate it with a race. So there's, you know, Hispanic suspects are identified by the police as Hispanic. You know, Hispanic is counted in the census alongside white and black. And they have to do all these sort of subtractions to make it work, right? And I think that um, when you think about the way in which the perception of Latinos in the race scheme of the country is constructed, it's constructed by this notion that we come from somewhere else that's backward mm. and uncivilized. Um, and so I think, you know, from a negative perspective, from the perspective of the construction of race ideas, migration is central, right, to the idea of who we are as a people. And conversely, I think the way we construct our identity ourselves our understanding of what it means to be Latino is by once again, you know, talking about how how our how our how our journeys are a result of these imperial stories. We don't call them those, but they are right. The story of Mexican underdevelopment, Mexican poverty, is a story of um, you know of imperial exploitation of the construction of you know corporate power in Mexico and corporate agriculture, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, governments in Central America that were overthrown. And so we have these migration stories that are related to empire. And we all understand that. I mean, even, you know, if you're Cuban, you, there was a, a Cuban revolution that took place because the, you know, Cuban nationalist youth didn't, didn't want to stomach anymore uh, the sins of the Batista government. Uh, at the service of U.S. imperial and corporate interests, right? And so there was a revolution. And of course, now there's the whole anti-communist movement, et cetera, et cetera. That's also a story of empire. Right. So what links us as Latino people is that we have these stories of empire in our past and empire causing migration. And that um, to me, so when, you know, when a Salvadoran man marries a Cuban woman, then they they merge these two, you know, they have this emotional commonality in the story of migration. And from that idea, the idea of Latino is born. Yeah. And your book, Our Migrant Souls, will come into the world at a moment when stories about migration and borders mm. are are very much in the news. And you have a chapter in your book called Lies that I found very powerful as a kind of um, rebuke of the ways in which migrants and immigration and borders are discussed. So it's clear to me that you are someone who wants to, I think many of us are trying to wrestle with how to do this, but to change Americans' minds about immigration and migrants and the immigrant experience. And so could you talk a little bit about how you would like to do that? Well, I think, first of all, we have to change the way in which we portray ourselves and the way we in which we understand our experience. And so one of the lies about the migrant experience is that we've, we're just, you know, hapless victims of these systems. And it's just not true. 
You know, um, every migration story involves a headstrong person at its center. Somebody who's like, this place is too small for me. I got to go to Bamapa Norte, right? To, mm-hmm. to reinvent ourselves. And so there's usually um, some very interesting family drama. There's all of these different, you know, shades of family dysfunction and whatnot, right? In these stories. And they're really interesting for that. And, and yet in the portrayal in the popular media by both the left and the right, you have this incredible flattening of that story, right? Yeah. We're either these barbarous cartel operatives or were these hapless immigrants, hapless peasants who don't understand we're confused. And there's all these metaphors, you know, we live in the shadows and Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all these things. And and so that is really debilitating to us. Even the, even the liberal leftist image of the, of the immigrant as this impoverished, exploited person, which has obviously has a grain of truth to it. It's just debilitating to us as a people because it becomes part of our self-image and the image that people have of us. And then, of course, is the other other part of this, uh, it, the other lie is just the creation of the immigrant as this you know threat, as the latest version of the Indians threatening the cowboys as they cross the range. And that's basically what the immigrant has become in the popular imagination. And you will all see this very often, of course, in cartel movies, which I had mm-hmm. great fun deconstructing mm-hmm. and deconstructing the way that cartels take this common aspect of everyday life in the United States, which is that you have a Latino neighbor, <laughs> you, you work with a Latino guy, and it makes you believe, wait, maybe that guy could be have a brother or maybe he is working for a cartel, you know, mm-hmm. because that's part of what they do. And that's what you see. Right. And it just escalates from there because on the extreme right, there's all these incredible conspiracy theories about George Soros and others encouraging these 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 um, sheep these Latino sheep to come forward and to transform the United States and transform our political balance, you know, by just flooding the United States with all of these, you know, Spanish speaking voters. And I think it's really important. And what I like, what I'm doing in my book is deconstructing that. Where does that come from? What kind of insecurities produce this? Yes. You know, and I, I'm very proud of, of, of some of the conclusions I reached about white insecurity and, and what really is feeding these white insecurities. Writing Latinos is brought to you by Public Books, an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can find us at publicbooks.org. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-B-O-O-K-S dot org. To donate to Public Books, visit publicbooks.org backslash donate. I was just going to ask you to, to, to say a little bit more about that. What are the insecurities that feed into this perception? Um, I think that your average American lives under an assault of data-driven capitalism, the insecurity of corporate America, the ruthlessness of corporate America, right? You go to work and you don't know if you're going to be laid off or, um, you know, you your credit score is being monitored and because your credit score is low, you can't get a home loan or you can't even rent a house or something. And so I think that that what the right has done is they've taken these insecurities and they've they've transposed them onto Latino people. So in the cartel movie, for example, that really ruthless cartel operative is really a capitalist. He's a hyper capitalist. Mm-hmm. 
So these dramas are written hardly ever by Latino writers, usually by white writers. And the white writers are essentially taking the really ruthless corporate boss and they're making him into a cartel boss, you know, cartel operative. So the cartels really are stand-ins for the corporations. I mean, one of the things that I, I really loved, and it's still related to this question of how we should reframe conversations about migration and and understand migrant lives in new ways is I love how, um, you know, part of what you're writing demands of us is a kind of recognition of all of our complicity in this same system. And part of how you do that is by kind of bringing us into the really intimate worlds of migrants. And some of these, um, I mean, to the extent that you can, you know, but as a, as a writer, but some very powerful images to me were when you talk about how all a migrant really wants is to be able to buy a lazy boy chair and mm -hmm. a back support <laughs> to rest and read and maybe fill their homes with um, special objects like a Diego Rivera reprint or something right. like or that. Or you know, Frida reprint, right. Yeah, yeah. Frida reprint, exactly. And and all um, listeners, you know, you're in for a treat to read the read Frida chapter as well. I mean, then there was also this really amazing moment, I think in part because my grandma and my Mexican-American grandma in Tucson would also take me to the homes of the people whose houses she cleaned, where mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. talk about going to your, um, I think to your aunt's mm -hmm. um, uh, jobs where she was a housekeeper. And you have a whole scene about how at the end of the day, when the family who's how she cleans kind of drops her off at the bus station, or if not her, then housekeepers like her, they just imagine that she's going off to some grimy, dangerous right. barrio <laughs> that they don't even um, really think about. And to me, that was just such an amazing way of demonstrating the kind of disconnect between, and what you want instead of that disconnect is to kind of bring us into encounters with one another. I think that, yeah. that part of too of what you're saying is that I think part of the one part of the migrant experience that we don't tell of of being a human being who is a Latino person in the United States, we don't really show the interclass journey, right? Mm -hmm. We don't show the bus ride that the that the woman takes from Bel Air to East LA, right in Los mm -hmm. Angeles, mm -hmm. every day. I mean, the the bus line, the number two bus line on Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> yeah. is filled with Latino women headed west and east, back and forth, because it it's really it it goes to the heart of the inequality of the United States and how the comfort of the United States is built on the labor of Latino people. And it's just so much easier just to erase that and to pretend it doesn't exist and, or to make it something really quaint and trivial. You know, so we have Lupe, we had Lupe Ontiveros playing and made 500 times, right, on tele, you know, in, in film and television and never really exploring, exploring her character very, very much in depth in all those different roles, right? She was just a backdrop to this story of you know, white drama and white, you know, sadness or whatever, or comedy that she would, right. all the different roles that she would do. And so, yeah, I just think we don't, we don't explore interconnectedness. And I think one of the lines I'm most famous, I'm most, I'm most proud of in my book is that we really are all characters in the same story. We're not, you know, all of us are, all of us are in the same stage called the United States of America. And you really can't understand uh, the whole, the plot of the movie <laughs> unless mm -hmm. you see the lives of all these people together in one stage. 
Yes. And let's stick for a minute on the subject of um, comfort and discomfort. But this time I'd, I'd like to ask about the discomfort many Latinos feel in talking about race in mm. particular. You know, your chapter on race is fascinating. And this is a topic I think that many Latinos are wrestling with right now. I've seen so many assertions over the past few months that we need to be having this very difficult conversation within our own communities about anti-Blackness, about anti-Indigeneity, mm. about our own identities. And I'm wondering, why is this conversation so difficult and uncomfortable for Latinos to have? Well, because our own history is filled with erasures, you know, and I, I see this every time I go back to Guatemala and I get to know um, my some of my older relatives a, a bit better and to have more um, serious discussions. You know, I've really learned in the last, just in the last 10 years or so, how much indigeneity, how easily it's erased in a Guatemalan family's story, right? Um, I have an uncle who is looks richly, you know, deeply indigenous. It turns out he's the product of a marriage between a woman who is herself pretty indigenous and a man who wasn't. And um, and so in his life, he his professional life has been successful. He works in he's a he worked in banks. He's now retired. He's a bank teller because he was able to erase his indigeneity, and he's totally aware of that. He says, "Look, Hector, in the village where I grew up, you you know people would move to the to the town, the nearest town, and when they moved, they would change their last names. So if they had a Mayan last name, they would become you know instead of Shuk or whatever you know, um, they would become Garcia or Ramirez." And so there's been this process of this erasure of our indigeneity and has a lot to do with patriarchy, has a lot to do with ideas of legitimacy and illegitimacy, has a lot to do with class, you know. And so that, you know, up until recently, it was considered a source of great shame in a mix, you know, and almost every family is mixed, that, you know, that you had an indigenous past. And I talked Gloria Arianes, who was a brown beret, discovering that she was really very much Tongva. She was a Tongva Indian. Now she's an elder in the Tongva tribe and how that history had been erased from her. So there's been this incredible erasure of, of our indigeneity. Also, I, you know, and I, 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 indigeneity itself, any indigenous identity is itself, itself's a kind of a story, an ongoing story. It's very flexible the way, you know, you can describe your, your own indigeneity. And then, of course, there's a huge elephant in the room, which is whiteness. And so there is this, we were supposed to be the next white people, right? Because like the Italians and the Greeks and the Jews, they all sort of assimilated into whiteness, some more successfully than others, Right. We were supposed to be that those people. <laughs> and a lot mm -hmm. of our relatives, a lot of our older relatives, they live that way. You know, they dyed their hair blonde or they, you know, they try to lose their accents and they take classes to lose their accents and whatnot. Um, and, and, and yeah, that is definitely I say that the that our relationship to whiteness is both the tragedy and the comedy of us. Because it's sort of ridiculous, some of the things that, you know, our people do, <laughs> you know, yeah. to feel or think themselves white. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and of course, white is this incredibly absurd term that, you know, is invented um, in American history to, you know, justify slavery, essentially. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, it, all of this is, it's a, it's a lot to unpack. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, the patient exploration of both United States history and your own genealogy, your own dramas, your own telenovelas, Absolutely. I, you know, I, something I get asked all the time and something I'm sure you're asked all the time is, are Latinos just becoming the next 
Italians, Germans, Irish. What's your answer to that? I think we would be becoming that were it not for um, immigration and were it not for the wall and were it not for the construction of the idea that Latino people are a danger to the race order of the United States, because that's that's what's happened in our lifetimes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so instead, Latino has become like a kind of caste. Now, of course, not everybody is a member of that caste, right? Carlos Slim, when he visits, <laughs> is not mm-hmm. a member of that mm-hmm. of that caste, right? Um, but um, but a lot of us, a lot of uh, us feel the weight of caste. And and I think that that the presence of that class caste um, equation and the image of us being that is what keeps us from becoming the next white people. I think the other thing I resist about that question is that it's tied to an older understanding Absolutely. of assimilation that said that to assimilate meant to become white in the late right. 19th and early 20th century, and. I think Latinos, by and large, probably are assimilating today, but I don't think that assimilating to the United States of the 21st century necessarily means assimilating as white. You know, I think we live in a much different country today right. than we did 100 years ago. Well, there's all different. Well, you know, it's I have lots of students who've grown up alongside black people or in mixed black Latino families. And the pull of African-American culture is also really strong because it has this incredible inventiveness that people identify with and this resilience that people identify with. And so, you know, I I, I, I see that. I think that, you know, um, there's just there's lots of stuff going on, I think. And in the end, I think the thing that we don't really talk a lot about is class, which is a big part of what Latino identity is about these days. I guess that relates to the next thing I wanted to ask too, which isn't about, it's kind of about this idea of fitting in Mm. and, you know, you have um, almost a a directive towards the end of the book about how we should do more. We should want more than to just fit in. And I think that, you know, the pressure that Latinos feel to fit in is part of how you explain um, you know, the more conservative Latinos among right, us, right, you know, right. the, that it's a desire to fit in. And I feel like, you know, writing about the experiences and beliefs of conservative Latinos is something I've given a lot of thought to over the past 10 years, in part because of my relationship with my grandfather, who was a very conservative Colombian Panameño who served mm. in the military. And, you know, I never thought of his aims as a human being was to fit into the United States. You know, he would talk about, he would talk with great pride about like having earned $250,000 over the course of a 20 year career in the military dishwasher. You know, if you calculate that out by the year, it's really not Mm -hmm. that much, but the idea that he had earned a quarter of a million dollars in his lifetime was an immense source of pride for him. And, you know, he talked about putting a, a roof over his family's head, sending his kids to school, those those things. But I had never thought of it in terms of just fitting in. And so I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about mm. the the pressure that Latinos to fit in and what fitting in means. Yeah, I think that primarily it means embracing American individualism, mm-hmm. right? Embracing this notion that we should define ourselves by the standard, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant measures of success that 
you know, became the dominant culture of this country up until recently. Mm-hmm. You know, that we should uh, value material wealth as a, as a measure of our um, goodness and a measure of how God has looked upon us as, as, as good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, should we fit in and assimilate into, into the consumer, the consumer yeah. model of living, right? Where you, you find glory and happiness because you buy a Tesla or, you know, and you feel good about yourself because you buy a Tesla. Also, it, it's a, it's a luxury object. <laughs> and, you know, and so should we aspire to that? Should we aspire to, to become just as worthy of that prize as anybody else. And I understand Mm -hmm. the pull of that, but to me, it's empty. It's Mm -hmm. an empty thing. It's also mathematically impossible for all of us to succeed because there are limited resources in the planet. And because of the way capitalism is is structured, there, 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 there are haves and have nots. And that's what whiteness is. First of all, no human being is white. White is this abstract category, right? And and white is not a color. White is a state of mind. Mm-hmm. So to 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 say I am white and you know is is to say um, I'm I no longer suffer the hardships of my Italian predecessors, my, my Irish predecessors, or even my rural impoverished Oregonian you know mm-hmm. <laughs> ancestors or whatever. So white is this state of mind in which you, nothing matters except how hard you work and everybody is equal. And so I don't, I I think entering into that, um, mean entering into that state of mind means forget by definition means forgetting about your past, forgetting about Mm -hmm. history, right. About the people who were responsible for bringing you to, to where you are. Right. And I, I just, I find that something that I don't want to aspire to. And I don't think. I don't think also it's viable anymore. I just don't think it's a good way to live. Yeah. And I think that, and I and I say this as someone who in a certain sense is a success according to those you know, parameters, mm. right? I sent my three kids to college. I've paid half a million dollars in university and private school tuitions. All my book advances have gone to my kids' education. I've led a good life according to that, to those measures. But I look forward to a future when we don't think of those as the only measures of a, of a well-led life. Yeah. yeah, no, it's heavy, man. And going back to <laughs> the, the um, you know, lives our parents wished for us and how we try to meet that. I mean, would you say, are you, is your life today kind of the fulfillment of what your parents would have wanted for you? I went to college. Um, I'm a respected professional, but more than anything, I'm a thinker. So I have redeemed my 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 Guatemalan parents. Who you know, my mother did graduate from high school, but my father, you know, only got as far as I think the fourth or fifth grade in Guatemala and came to night school in the United States. And I've redeemed them. You know, I've I've made them feel like. Um, like gente de razón, right? Yes, That's the, yes. that was the term the the Spanish would use to people who were not barbarous Indians. They were gente de razón, you know, these racist ideas, and so that you know working work their ways into into our minds, into our heads, yeah. um, and we feel we feel broken, we feel tainted, we feel doomed, and and part of what um, every parent hopes for their kid, every migrant hopes for their kid, is that they escape. You know, yes, the precarity, yeah. they escape the insults of poverty and all of that. So in that measure, yes. And 
for me, the the wonderful thing is that I've been, I've managed to do that, and now I am turning it. I am turning that against itself, <laughs> <laughs> or attempting to, you know. Yes, yes. Especially with the last the last passages of the of my book. Yes. Oh, that speaks, I'm sure, to to so many of us. Um, so you know, one thing you had started to talk about talk about was your Guatemalan parents, um, and that leads me to the last question. You know, among all of the things that our migrant souls is, it is a memoir. So I'm wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit more about your personal journey and specifically how your thoughts about Latinidad have evolved through conversations with your family, through conversations with your students, and through your travels across the country, because another important part of the book in, say, the last third or so is your drive to to the Pacific Northwest and to Idaho and to the South and to New York. So, um, you know, how has learning about those other Latino experiences intersected with your own sense of Latinidad based on your life and, um, you know, maybe even reshape some of your thoughts about what it means to be Latino? Right. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I think that one of the wonderful things about being a writer as opposed to being a ballerina is that you get better at it as you get older mm -hmm, <laughs> because mm -hmm. you can um, bring sort of the wisdom that you acquire about life, uh, the insights that you acquire, you know, not just from studying and reading, but also just from being a father and being a worker, you know, being an employee, all those things teach you about about life. And, 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 and as you get older too, you can understand more the motivations of the people around you. So you asked about my family and I've really come to understand my mother and father so much better now that I've been a parent myself for more than 20 years and, and that I've, you know, and, and seen them enter their, you know, their sunset years and seeing them reflect on their own lives. I I've, and that's part of what the book is about too. It's coming to a realization about my father, especially in the traumas that he suffered as a child and how that shaped his vision of himself and how really he never stopped being that poor kid who was abused by his stepmother and grew up in this town, a uh, very, very poor town of Walan in, in Guatemala. As you sort of acquire this wisdom and this insight about yourself, it, it also shapes the way you see the world around you. And so traveling across the United States, I meet people like my mother and father all the time. And essentially, those are those character. That type of person appears in my books all the time. I, my books are filled with working class Latino intellectuals. Mm -hmm. You know, with the construction worker. In fact, in fact, there's a construction worker in the book from Atlanta who's undocumented. He's in his fifties. Yeah, reads like crazy. Reads the Mexican political press. Reads poetry. You know, is a philosopher. I meet people like that all the time. I stumbled in, I was walking through Spanish Harlem and I met this guy. He had worked for, I think the sanitation department or something. No, he worked for the utilities in New York city, but he was a philosopher and he quote, he was describing the community history in this one that had taken place in this one block in just great detail. And so realizing that that's sort of just part of who we are 
and that we, you know, is it, just been one of the great journeys of, of my life. And to be able to share it with the readers as I drive across the United States and see all these different places, you know, it was just a wonderful thing. And, and realizing we have these commonalities, you know, just I go to speak to this Mexican construction worker in Atlanta who's telling me he hasn't seen his family in 20 years because he's undocumented and he can't cross. And then a few days later, I was in Miami and I'm speaking with these Cuban men and women who were separated from their relatives for 20 years, right? And so it's yeah. this seeing these kind of commonalities is has been really one of the great gifts of of working on this book and of my career as a as a writer. Thank you so much for your time, Hector. Um, Hector Tobar is the author of Our Migrant Souls, A Meditation on Race and the Meanings and Myths of Latino. And I promise you, you're going to want to go out and get it and read it because it's really um, thoughtful and thought provoking. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Hector. Thank you so much for having me and for your thoughtful questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of Writing Latinos. We'd love to hear your suggestions for new books that we should be reading and talking about. Drop us a line at Geraldo at publicbooks.org. That's G-E-R-A-L-D-O at publicbooks.org. This episode is brought to you by Public Books. It was produced and edited by Tasha Sandoval. Our music is City of Mirrors by the Chicago-based band Dos Santos. I'm Gerardo Cadava. We'll see you again next time. Tantos han partido.